You're listening to episode 104 of the Writing Life podcast from the National Centre for Writing, a weekly podcast for anyone who writes. I'm Simon Jones. And I'm Steph McKenna. And it is the 22nd of July here in Norwich as we're recording this. So this week is very exciting because it is time for another Early Career Writers Resource Pack. Nice. And this time around, we are covering a lot. So earlier in the year, in January, we did Beginnings, which was to try and inspire and help people to kind of get started and actually start getting some words down. In March, we talked about Method. In May, it was Characters. And now we are on to Plot. And we've got a really lovely pack coming up for you this week. In this pack, we have a written piece from Inua Ellums on Plot called An Atheist Goes for a Walk in the Woods, which is a fantastic title. Okachuku Nizulu's video on how he approaches plot. Simon K. Jones, our very own, hello, has written a piece on balancing plot, theme and character. Hello. And finally, we have this lovely podcast chat with crime writer Nicola Apson. Simon, tell us a little bit about the chat that you had with Nicola. Yeah, so we had Nicola on the pod way back at the start. We talked to her when she was up for the Noirage Crime Writing Festival. But back Mm -hmm. then, we only had about 10 minutes with her because it was squeezed in in between a couple of panel events that she was doing. It was a flyby. Yes, exactly. So we've been meaning to get Nicola back on the pod for ages, and this seemed like as good an excuse as any. Um, So yeah, we talked to Nicola about how she approaches plot in her Josephine Tay books. Yes. Which is a... Nicely long-running series now. I think there's eight books out with more on the way. We talk about some of the unique ways that plot works in crime fiction and the way she has changed her way of plotting her books from her early books when she was kind of starting out and figuring out her particular method and how she does it now. And yeah, there's lots of really great practical advice in here. It's always interesting to see how different writers approach this stuff. And I think like all the other resource packs we've done with all the all the different writers who have shared their particular approaches, like you have to find your own way through this stuff as well. But hopefully mm. hearing from other people about how they do it can give you some clues or at least let you know that everyone is slightly different. I'm looking forward to watching Oki's video and hearing him speak about uh, how he plots his novels, having recently read The Private Joys of Nena Maloney, uh, which was published by Dialogue Books and was one of our Desmond Elliott Prize shortlisted titles this year. Yeah, it's a proper lockdown style video, which Oki shot himself and sent over. And yeah, lots of great tips in there as well. And very specific to the book, his debut book that has come out. And I think he has a background as a teacher, so it's uh, all good advice. Lovely. So these resource packs are part of our Early Career Awards programme, which the Desmond Elliott Prize was part of as well. And the resource packs are made possible thanks to support from Arts Council England, which we're very pleased about because although we were running the awards, we wanted to make sure that all writers could benefit from this programme, even if they aren't fortunate enough to be the actual award winners so yeah every couple of months keep an eye out for more of these packs we are we are still going and come back in a couple of months to find out what we're doing next right so let's jump into my chat with nicola to kick off i guess the uh the first question really is how much do you like to work on a plot uh are you someone who kind of rigorously plans out everything or do you prefer to make things up as you go along? 
I think that varies from book to book, uh, depending on what kind of story it is that I'm trying to tell. Certainly in the early days, the first two or three novels in this series, when fiction still felt very new to me, and it was all a bit daunting at times, I mapped out pretty much uh, the, the beginning, the middle and the end. It helped me to have some sort of roadmap of, of where I was going to end up, even if that bit in the middle evolved and changed as I went along. Um, nowadays, I, I do that less, I find, since I've become more confident with the books, since I've come to know the characters much better. Uh, I I tend to be a bit more fluid going into it. And certainly, uh, I think that the turning point for me was was a book called The Death of Lucy Kite, which was a, a book where Josephine inherits a cottage full of secrets. And I wanted to write one of those mysteries that I love to read, one of those things that twists and turns and you never quite feel you've got a grasp of, of, of what's going on. So sitting down to start that book, when Josephine went to that cottage for the first time, I wrote a load of questions that she had to answer, mysteries to solve, clues that were planted. And I absolutely had no idea what their significance would turn out to be, uh, what the answers to the questions were, or even if everything in that, that those few chapters I'd be able to leave in. Uh, and it was amazing how much of that actually stayed. And, um, and I really solved the mystery in that book. Uh, with Josephine in the real time of the novel. And, and that, I found, is is a lovely way to work. It doesn't always work like that. I mean, the, the book, my most recent book that's been published, Sorry for the Dead, is in different time zones. And by the end of the book, all those time zones have to layer up on each other and, and add something to the mystery that the next one will pick up on. So that had to be much more carefully plotted. But it depends these days very much on on the story and and how the idea for that story evolves. Mm. I love the idea that this kind of mystery house had to be a bit of a mystery to you as well as you were it, writing it. It did. And and when you think about it, I, I suppose that makes perfect sense because if you don't know when you're writing these things, then hopefully the, the, the red herrings are, are much more real for the readers as well. They, they, it's less obvious the path that you're going to take. And certainly an, another book, I won't say which one because it would give it away, but I sat down to write an opening chapter, including somebody who I thought was going to be a very peripheral character. And by the time I'd finished writing that chapter, I knew that person would be at the heart of whatever went on to to uh, happen in that particular book. So it happens in different ways. And I'm less panicky about that now. I think, I think that in the early books, I was quite obsessive about knowing where I was going. But this new book I'm about to embark on, it's I've got a setting, I've got a particular event from history that I want it to revolve around, and, I, and I've got a title. And that's about it at the moment. It's the first time in my life that I've ever had a title quite so early on that I'm so attached to that I've just got to find the story that goes with it. But <laughs> hopefully it'll work out. So yes, yeah, it sounds like those, those early books uh, when you were starting out as a writer, you you weren't yet quite convinced that you knew where you were going. And then as you proved yourself that you could do it, you're now more comfortable to not know exactly what the journey is through the, through the plot. I think that's exactly right. I also think that back then it was quite comforting to me to be writing a crime novel because at the time that was something I viewed as having a particular sturdy structure 
to work around. I mean, I, I've since gone on to believe that actually that's that's nonsense, and there are as many different crime novels and as many different ways to write them as there are books. But the idea of of that structure, the the murder followed by the preliminary investigation followed by perhaps the second murder and the denouement helped me in those early books. Although these days that's that's not necessarily hardly ever, in fact, the, the way that the books work out. No, and I suppose particularly on those early books where you were going into significant detail in working out that plot, is it was it something that you would work through kind of from start to finish as the story would go or would you kind of jump around and fill in bits here and there what was the process like for that I think it's true to say that pretty much none of the books even the early ones have been particularly linear in the way they're plotted um, the plot tends to evolve gradually for me and it, it, it there's, there's something magical about it that I, I still can't quite explain that as you get about halfway into a book You've got the themes you want to work in. You've got the basic storyline, but new layers and depths keep appearing, and, and they keep to be playing into your hands, which which is a fantastic thing. And I, you can't bottle it. You can't explain it. You just have to hope for it. But I think there's always a moment for me um, when I start to panic. When there's so much that I want to include in a book, there's so many scenes going on simultaneously in my head. I always think of it. One of my favourite films is the film Carrington. And there's a scene in that movie where Carrington is is standing outside a house at night and she's looking at all the different lighted windows. And there's a different story and different lives taking place in each one of those windows simultaneously. And that's how I feel about a book at some stage when it really starts to come together. There's, there's all these different moments that I want to bring to the reader uh, but there doesn't seem to be any kind of sequen- sequential order to them. They they don't seem they all seem to coexist. So it helps me really, I think, to write down all the scenes that I want to include, and to ask myself what are the connections between those scenes? What is the single most important purpose of each scene? And that, in some way, helps me to find the order that they should be told in. It it it, it brings it out. Um, also, I think that the the other reason that a lot of my books don't evolve in a linear way is because sometimes they're set in different time zones. And so I find it very helpful to write one time in, in a cohesive sort of sitting, even if ultimately in the book it appears more fragmented to the reader. That's not how it's presented. I think it's important to get yourself into that particular part of the book and stay there until you finish that that strand of the narrative. That's really interesting. That's uh, a little bit like when you might shoot a film and you'd you'd shoot all the scenes that were in one location in one go, even if later on you'd edit them into a completely different order. Exactly. Um, so that you know your your actors and and uh, your, the style of everything is kind of consistent across that that section. Yeah, I've certainly was sorry for the dead, which is takes place in 1915, 1938, and 1948. It was very important to me to get that 1915 scene scenes done completely in, in one strand because they were the bedrock of the whole book they were what everything else started from so even though they appear in two separate blocks within the novel um, hopefully they they still feel coherent hopefully the, the reader is transported back immediately that to that because I was living through that with a certain amount of immediacy yeah so presumably the, the way a plot is told in your first draft is different to the final version? No, not really. I might not write 
the book in the order that it's presented ultimately. But I do tend to write reasonably slowly, but what I put down tends to stay. And it, there aren't many, many changes from the first draft to the edited draft. I, I perversely, I think like a lot of writers, I love editing myself. I love that when there's there's a solid first draft down. And I find particularly because the books are set in the 1930s, the early stages tend to have too much research in them because there are things that I found fascinating and it's always confidence <laughs> boosting to have the words on the page. And perversely, there's nothing more satisfying than going back and taking out the words you sweated over writing in the first place. But that really is the only difference. Um, once the words are down on the page, uh, the plot, tends to stay pretty much as it is that nothing major gets I don't write lots of drafts there's the first draft um, and then I do a read through and an edit before it it goes off to Faber uh, and that that tends to be how it is. So although this pack and the conversation we've got today is is about plot and that's our focus you can't obviously have plot in isolation it has to work alongside all the other aspects of, of a novel and I was wondering about Particularly, I suppose, in the crime genre, where there there is often an expectation for the, for a plot to be quite detailed and twisty and turny, and you know how how true that is to the genre is another question. But I was wondering when you have your plot kind of collide with your characters, how do you reconcile those two things and make sure that your plot is kind of obeying the characters and not forcing them to do strange things? And how do you how do you try and keep all that on track? I think it's quite easy for me with the way I write because plot very much stems out of character in the first place. A, a book always starts for me in, in, in pretty much the same way. Josephine Tay being the central character, being based on a real life person, there is always something real about her life or about her work which kickstarts the idea. Um, and that keeps her emotionally rooted to the plot because Although she is the lead character in the book, she's not a policeman, she's not an official investigator, she's not even a, uh, a Miss Marple type figure. Uh, so she has to be strongly connected to the narrative, but not in that obvious investigative way. So starting with something real about her life helps, helps root her, cement her very, very firmly in the plot to start with. Then there's always where I want to set the book that comes very up very high up the list of priorities when I'm starting out. And the setting will dictate a lot about the plot because it will dictate the sort of people who live there and therefore the sort of people who will be involved in the plot, the sort of crimes that are committed. Um, and I suppose you know, if, if you look at two different books, Fear in the Sunlight, which is set in Port Marion, arriving in that, it's like its own film set. It's it's the most wonderful enclosed village designed by Clough Williams Ellis. And I knew within half an hour of getting there that I would want to set a book there because it's like a playground for a killer. It's the ultimate locked room. <laughs> but of course, so the, the, the crime in that, the plot, had to live up to the setting. It had to be a certain amount of theatricality. It had, had to be a flamboyant sort of serial killer style novel. Um, although there's a, an, another theme that runs through it that's much, much less extravagant like that. But you had, you had to live up to kind of the, the glamour and the setting of Port Marion. Whereas uh, my second novel, Angel with Two Faces, was set in Cornwall. It was set on a, on a Cornish estate 
where the same gener- same families go back for generations. And so that was much more a book about the sort of domestic secrets that perhaps we all know in our own families and how they can get out of hand. But that, again, was very, very much dictated by the setting. So with a bit of luck, because they come so strongly, the, the plots and the murders out of out of the characters that I'm building and the and the worlds that those characters live in, there aren't too many misbeats or changes later on because the starting point for that were the people who are going to live through that story. I think that's what makes a story more than just a sequence of stuff that happened, um, which is what a plot can be sometimes if it's not brought to life in the right way. Whereas starting off with character and with your setting, it stops the plot from just being the skeleton and it gives it life, I suppose. It does, yeah. I mean, that it has to be human. Ultimately, the readers have to believe in that world you've created. They have to think that those people they're reading about are the same as living, breathing people that they meet in, in their everyday lives. And if you achieve that, then you will hopefully carry off the idea for the story that that you that you're trying to bring to fruition but it is it is very much about making it human and, and making those characters own that story and be at the center of everything it's those emotions it's it's uh, despite what i said just now about port marion and a serial killer uh, i'm more interested in the sorts of crimes that might make you or i take that ultimate step of of committing murder so they're very very deeply rooted in the human emotions of the book. In terms of crime fiction, and you're going to be far more expert on this subject than I am, so uh, feel free to disagree, but I was thinking how crime fiction, almost the books almost have two concurrent plots. So you've got the plot of the book as the reader is reading it, and then you you often have this uh, kind of other plot, which is the story of the crime that has already happened. Um, and, and often you have some kind of investigator character who's in the main plot discovering what has happened in the other plot. And I was just kind of wondering as a, as a crime author, how you go about constructing a story that is so reliant on the reader not knowing those key aspects of, of the other storyline. I think that's that's a really good point. And, and I've written one novel that wasn't a crime novel. Um, and I was writing it sort of concurrently in between the contracted crime novels. It was a novel about called Stanley and Elsie, which was about Stanley Spencer and his creation of the of the First World War Chapel and, and the, his marriage and his life. And writing that book, it really made me appreciate, I think, the the crimes in a crime novel, how key those moments, particularly the writing of a murder, the discovery of a body, to what extent they orchestrate the whole book and 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 in a way underpin the whole book and I, and I think you rely on those as a crime writer and I and I hadn't really quite appreciated how heavily before but you're absolutely right um that there is that kind of double narrative going on which which I also writing a, a non-crime narrative made me appreciate how hard that is to do actually because almost unconsciously you've got two things going on you're writing that you've got the story in your head. Ultimately, you know the beginning, the middle, and the end. But you've also got that that narrative that you want to present to your reader, and you want to manipulate um, what they are thinking at any given time within the book. And you have to rely on on sleight of hand, on you know the character relationships, on burying your clues 
um, in, in the most incidental of conversations. But I think crime, more than any other genre really, is one where you're trying to second guess the reader all the time. I mean, when I was writing the non-crime novel, I was there were trigger moments when I wanted the reader to feel certain things or experience certain emotions, but it's not quite the same as manipulating what they're actually thinking. And that's really quite hard to do. And it's, it's hard as a writer, I think, to know how, to what extent, really, you've got away with it until other people read the book. Well, that's why it's always always handy to have a first reader before you deliver your book um, to, to your publisher. Because sometimes the things that you think are incredibly obvious just slip right under the net. And others, the things that you think you've hidden so well are out there, you know, almost in neon. So it is it is good to have somebody on your side who will read that book and, and, and tell you honestly, because it's very, very hard to judge because you're so close to it. Yeah, I love that you use the phrase uh, getting away with it and you're talking about evidence. And <laughs> you're essentially talking a little bit like a criminal who has just committed a crime and is trying to figure exactly. out what clues they've left behind. Exactly. But that is what you're trying to do with a crime novel. You're trying to get away with it until the moment when when you want to to hold yourself up for the reader's judgment. Yeah, how do you go about trying to kind of pace the release of that information? Because as you say, in in a non-crime novel, there might be specific emotional moments and you'll have occasional reveals, but I feel like that kind of tightrope of giving them enough information to, to want to keep reading, but without them being able to work it out on page two, it must be incredibly delicate. It is delicate. I, th- I think there's lots of things that come into play. Again, it's it's... What I mentioned earlier, when you are writing the scenes down that you want to include, it's very, very important, I think, to decide at that point what you're going to reveal. Because I think you need to have, you don't want it to come as a sudden avalanche at the end. And you don't want, as you say, everybody to know the outcome on book two. I mean, I'm, I'm, and I think you've got two types of readers. When I read crime fiction, I'm not trying to guess. I, I hate it if I if I get it right. I really like to, to go with the writer and, and be surprised at the moment. I'm supposed to be surprised, but I know not, lots of readers aren't like that. So you, you have to cater for everything. So it's a matter of um, choosing, I think, early on what the significant reveals are and when you're going to give that to the reader and, and to try and even that out through the book and, and make, make it as interesting as possible. And also make sure there are plenty of themes in the book, plenty of ideas in the book that spread out from the main idea. Um, I, I am actually, you, you said earlier, to what extent is that part of the crime novel? I think the puzzle for me is still very important, the guessing game and the, the, the pact you enter into with a reader. So I try to play fair from that point of view. I also think it's a matter of perspective as well. It's it's a matter of deciding early on whose story it is, um, whose scene each scene is, uh, whether you are going to. I mean, I've written a book, that, that particular book, The Death of Lucy Kite with the Cottage. Throughout the whole of that book, we are with Josephine all the time because it's her unra- unravelling the clues and the mystery. Uh, but that doesn't work for all books. Most of my novels have different perspectives um, and lots of the characters, we are we are with them at some point in the book, in their heads. So it's about choosing who owns a particular scene and what 
is the best perspective that you can give the reader what they need from that scene before you set down to write who's telling that part of the story. I think that's a very, it's almost as important as the order of events itself is whose eyes they're seen through. Uh, in terms of the, the the idea of a, a crime book being having that kind of puzzle element, and the first read of a book like that is going to be fundamentally different to any subsequent read. And how do you? I mean, how important is it for you to make a to write a book that a reader can read again in the future? Um, and obviously, with that puzzle element removed or solved from their perspective, like how do you? ensure that the book is still a satisfying read even after that? I don't know that you can set out to strive for that. I think it's the biggest compliment a reader can give you is to say that they've read one of your books more than once, regardless of whether or not it's a crime novel, because there are so many brilliant books out there and most people are so pressed for time that if they pick up your book once, it's lovely. If they follow a series, it's fantastic. But if they tell you that they have sat down with those characters more than once, then that is is the ultimate accolade, really. Um, but I think the answer is in the characters, particularly when you're writing a series. Um, I'm very, very conscious now that people have come to love those characters. They love the Josephine Tay that's portrayed in those books. They love Archie, who's my detective. And so... I'm very conscious that with each new book I write, I have to add to their understanding and their appreciation of of who those people are and to make the plots for the characters, if you like, as important as the plot for that particular novel. And I think if you do bring a world to life and if you do create people who are appealing. And I don't just mean likeable by that. You don't have to like an author's characters, but you have to be engaged by them. You have to respond to them. You have to feel some sort of empathy for them. And it is that sort of side of things that I think brings people back to these books more than once, Um, certainly from from what they tell me. Although I have to say there is also the point, and, and I'm terrible at this, is that you really, really don't always remember um, I remember I remember P.D. James telling me once that uh, she had been invited to America to lecture on a particular book of hers, and she read the novel again going over on the plane, and she was utterly surprised because it was a completely different person who'd done it to the one that she thought it was. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I remember thinking at the time, um, oh, to get to that stage where, where you had such a body of work behind you that you could actually forget who, who the criminal was in a particular book. But certainly as a reader, I don't remember as strongly if I watch things on television more than once. And I, so I think, you know, it's it, maybe it comes back to you as, as you pick up the book and start to read it again. But I also think there's an element of um, of being surprised by a book that you haven't read for a long time even down to the plot details. Yes, it's a strange feeling as a writer when you, you read back something that you've done and have absolutely no memory of, <laughs> of writing it. Or <laughs> yeah. um, Something else in, in crime fiction is that there's often a specific character in the book whose job it is to, to actually kind of examine the book's plot and pick it apart and try and find holes in it. Uh, you know, whether it's a detective or some other kind of investigator type role, that seems like something that's quite unique to the genre. You don't normally have a, a character who is so kind of uh, reflective and aware of the story's plot beats. 
That is true. Although you have to remember that you are always in control of the picking at the plot that that person does. I, I personally don't don't buy into this this idea that characters take on a whole new life without your knowledge as you're trying to write a book. Yes, they they change slightly. They develop in certain different ways that perhaps you didn't expect. But you are ultimately in control of both the plot and the character who is supposed to be unpicking it. And, and I also think maybe it's not quite as specific to crime as it might first appear, because certainly when I was writing Stanley and Elsie, Elsie in that case was Stanley Spencer's maid who who lived with him through the, the most turbulent years of his life. And she in that book is very much um, the reader's access point to Stanley Spencer and his often bizarre life and often bizarre or not bizarre work, but very complex work. She is the book's kind of moral compass, not in terms of judgment, but in terms of understanding. And she's also the reader's safety net. So I think lots of books have that character who almost functions as a Greek chorus figure, who who is the reader's guide to the information that's going on, whether or not that's a, that's a plot or, or a crime novel. Yeah, it's, that, it's just the, the way to give the reader a kind of helping hand to get into the, the world of that book, I suppose. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting what you were saying about the importance of, of characters to a series as well, because I, would, I can imagine that with book number one, people maybe came to it because they'd heard it was a, an interesting story. And subsequently, presumably, you have a lot of readers who come back because they love the characters. And the crime hook is maybe not as critical as it was in book one, um, because now they're they're invested in the characters and the world that you've created. Yes, I think that's right. I think doubly so because the first book uh, was the first, obviously, to to feature Josephine Tay as a real character. So certainly in terms of my writing that book, I was very, very keen to make the Tay who appeared there as truthful as possible. I was also keen to, if you like, share as much as I knew about her at the time with the readers, certainly with people who were um, diehard Josephine Tay fans who came to the book for that purpose of, of finding a bit more out about an author they loved and admired. And as the book's gone on, yes, she is still, to my mind, a truthful reflection of the real Josephine Tay, who, who, of the voice that comes out of those eight crime novels that is absolutely unique. Uh, but also now she's she's a character in the books and she must take her place in the story as that. So there's there's always a point where, although the books start with something real about her or her work um, and, and follow those through quite truthfully, um, ultimately the novel, the story has to take over. And, and I think I've I've got better and I've certainly felt more comfortable now about mixing those two things as the as the stories have progressed and and as the books have gone on but yeah you really have to do have to give um a lot of consideration to those characters I think to make them fresh um to keep them surprising for people I you know Josephine Tay was a surprising and complex person in real life so it's the least I can do to make sure she appears that way on the page as well. And I think you become, the more books you write, the more obsessive you become about 
giving the readers something a bit different each time, um, something new in the way you tell a story, something new about the characters. I, I, I would never want people to come to my books expecting a particular sort of plot, even though there are certain themes that are important to me that reoccur through the books. Interesting, yeah, because I was going to ask how being eight books in, uh, how does that affect your your plotting and what you can and can't do with the books? But it sounds like from the beginning you've made a, a, an effort to not be kind of constrained by the fact that it's an on-running series. Yeah, I think so. I, I think with the first book, um, my editor, Walter Donahue at Faber, Who's who's been my editor right from the start? He he taught me something very important, which which I knew it was going to be a series. I knew there was going to be another book, so I ended that first book with you know not a cliffhanger as such, but with some unresolved issues that I intended to carry over into the next book. And and he was very encouraging to get everything done and tied up within the context of that novel because he said you might not. Th- think now, but you will always have new ideas. There will always be something that comes along that becomes the focus of the next book. So don't don't stint yourself. Don't hold back ideas because you're worried that the next book's going to be a bit thin on them. So I, <laughs> I, I do try to do that. I mean, lots of people say that, you know, you should, you should always write a book as, as if it's your first book again. I've heard that said. I, I always think that it's quite sensible to write it as if it's going to be your last as well, you know, to tie those things up uh, and to make sure that the reader has not just the satisfaction of the plot, but also the satisfaction of something meaningful, some point reached in the lives of the characters that they've come to love so much. When you, well, either when you started out or now, did you have a an idea of a a fixed number of books that would be in the series or was the intention for it to be an on-running thing that could go for as long as you wanted it to? Yeah, I don't think I've ever had a a set number of books. Um, I did decide that the books would really sort of age with Josephine, that she would age in real time and that idea soon went out the window because (laughs) I found the 1930s really, really interesting to write about and there was no way that I wanted to bucket her into the very, very different world of the Second World War uh, before I'd finished with the 30s and readers will know that we're pretty much there now. The book that's coming out soon, The Dead of Winter, is the last Christmas before the war. So um, we are going to get there. So, So that idea didn't really last long. (laughs) Um, But certainly in terms of the potential for her as a character, we haven't even really reached her most fertile period of work, which was immediately after the Second World War when she wrote those glut of wonderful, wonderful crime novels like The Franchise Affair and Brat Farrer and The Daughter of Time, perhaps most famously. So there's plenty of mileage uh, in her life for inspiration and as long as people continue to love these books and, and come to these books, and as long as Faber commissioned them, then then I will certainly be very, <laughs> very happy to keep writing them. Because, again, there's there's very little. I, I wanted to write Stanley and Elsie because I wanted to write specifically about Stanley and uh, about Stanley Spencer. And there are certain ideas that I've got for books in that vein that I do want to go out and explore. But there's not really anything that. I've found from a thematic point of view or from a plot point of view that I can't explore through the Josephine Tay novels or certainly through a crime novel in general. 
Um, and I, I think that's the wonderful thing about the genre now. It's it's almost become a nonsense to call it a genre because it's so wide ranging and so broad <laughs> and such an eclectic church. And that's fantastic. I think I think that's one of the reasons, unquestionably, why it remains so popular. Uh, in terms of that interweaving of kind of facts and fiction, where you, you've got the stories you're telling, but you've got the real Josephine kind of intersecting with it, and also the real history of the 30s and you're nearly at the 40s. Um, how, how do you how do you kind of wrangle all those different elements into a story that you want to tell? That's really hard to say because it, it again it evolves slightly differently with each book. I mean, I would say that the research into Josephine Tay's life goes on. Uh, I've been researching her, collecting letters, snippets of information from archives all over the country and and certainly in America as well for 25 years now. So that picture of her becomes, I was going to say more comprehensive, but actually the more you know about her, the more contradictory she becomes. <laughs> uh, so so that's an ongoing thing. And there are there is something that I could hug her for. Uh, there's something fabulous about the years that she lived through because they, although it's back in the 1930s, it's astonishing how many of the themes and issues of that day are still relevant. I mean, they were particular years of social change for women, which is very, very interesting. For me, it's very fitting. For Tay, who was a woman ahead of her time in lots of ways. So the social backdrop, the chance to include things like the abdication and and the coronation and now the lead up to the Second World War are just astonishing and, and, and there are things the research actually often dictates the way the plot will develop because you will find out little snippets of stuff or a, maybe a, a bigger canvas of history that that can ultimately shape the particular book that you're trying to write at the time I think the biggest artificiality in, in, in a lot of ways is, is actually the crime itself because I often feature real crime in my books whether it's the Red Barn murder and the murder of Mariah Martin and the death of Lucy Kite uh, or the Edwardian baby farmers, uh, Sack and Walters, who were hanged at Holloway at the, just after the turn of the century. Um, they fascinate me, but I have found that some, sometimes real crime is, is so absurd. I remember in, in London Rain, which is a book set in part during the coronation, and I wanted to feature the real, some of the real crimes, just as a, as a background, as a as a as a colour really to to the novel, some of the real crimes that were going on during the coronation. Um, and there was a, a, a woman's body was found in a, in a warehouse outside London. And uh, the person who did it, the man who did it, had sent a note to the police saying, I know nothing about the body that you're going to find in a warehouse. <laughs> and it's just really absurd things like that. The fact that William Corder killed Mariah Martin then had to go to a house and borrow a spade. But <laughs> just make you realise, you know, how ridiculously fallible crime is in general and people who commit crime and and if you wrote that in a fictional crime series you'd never get away with it so I, I think bizarrely that the crimes are more professional polished in crime fiction than they often are in real life yeah it's funny that people's perception of what real crime is is probably more dictated by crime fiction and yes. that the reality is actually far pe more peculiar <laughs> exactly far more squalid and ordinary and day-to-day and -day, really Mm, yeah, I think it's a similar, sounds like a similar problem to, say, political satirists have at the moment, where nothing <laughs> they write can possibly live yeah. up to the reality of <laughs> what we're living yes. through. Yes, yes, sadly, I think that might continue for some time. 
Yes, indeed. Um, so what are you working on at the moment? There's a, another Josephine Tay novel in the works, is that right? Uh, yep, there's a, a new one coming out at uh, Christmas, The Dead of Winter. It's coming out in November and it is a riff on the Golden Age Christmas mystery uh, set on St. Michael's Mount in Cornwall. So it's all, also the, the the very wonderful Golden Age tradition of, of Ireland's cut off in times of crisis. So <laughs> that's coming out in November and I'm just about to start writing. I've been researching for, for a while now, uh, the new book, which will be set just at the very, very early days of the Second World War. And we're taking Josephine back to, uh, to Suffolk for that one. That must be a, an interesting, exciting new challenge for the series because you, know, you were talking earlier about how important the setting is to your work and the, the fundamental dramatic shift that the 40s are going to bring, which you, know, you can't possibly ignore. Yes. <laughs> That's going to really shift what, no. you, what you can write about. It is. I mean, it will, uh, it will be interesting for her because, of course, um, really in the Second World War, with all the travel restrictions and everything, she was isolated a lot more in her hometown of Inverness, whereas before the war she'd enjoyed frequent trips to England and Europe and, and living the high life in the West End as a playwright as well as a novelist. So in real life, she was much more restricted. So I'm going to have to get around that somehow. Uh, but I think my intention for that, I've got a, f- a few ideas for um, for key books that, that might take place during the war, uh, again, both based on real moments of history. And they are very much focusing on the home front or focusing on people's everyday experiences of that war, um, not the political situation, not the fighting, but very, very much the ordinary day-to-day living with that perpetual backdrop, worry, fear uh, of, of war and, and of where your loved ones were. And it, it's, it's been really interesting, actually, uh, I'm researching this new book and, and everybody's uncertainty at the start of that war, everybody waiting for something to happen for so long everybody almost wanting it to just get here so they could get over it and, and, and get on with life and get past it. And it really has struck a chord with, you know, not, not that I want to do quite such authentic research, but it has been very, very interesting to be researching that sort of um, emotional mentality through, through lockdown and to see how similar people's fears are in those two moments of, of national crisis, actually. It's it's quite freaky sometimes. I'm reading things um, like The Provincial Lady in Wartime and Marjorie Allingham's wonderful, wonderful book, The Oaken Heart, which is a, a non-fiction book, which is a biography of a village in the first years of the Second World War. And to see how many of the things that she writes in that book could have been taken out of the newspapers in in the first <laughs> days of of this crisis that we're living through. Yeah, as you're saying, it's strange how these themes and ideas and people's responses kind of resonate across decades and centuries, and even something which is set a long time ago doesn't feel dated at all because we we're <laughs> we we're still reacting in the same ways. Yeah, we are, and that that in a way makes it much easier for me and and for historical novelists because I think none of us want although we want it to be authentically set and we want it not never to be anachronistic you also want your your characters to to speak to modern readers and I think the fact that those fundamental emotions and fears 
never really change makes it much easier to do that. Absolutely. Well, Nicola, thank you very much for your time. That's been a really wonderful masterclass in plot and how you've kind of explored it over the course of your books. My pleasure, Simon. Thank you. Thanks to Nicola and to Simon for that brilliant chat. Before we go, I just wanted to give a quick shout out to our annual Noirage Crime Writing Festival, which is taking place again this year. But this time, for the first time, it's taking place completely digitally. So the full lineup will be announced next week on Wednesday, the 29th of July, and it will include further details on our annual Noirage lecture, which this year will be delivered by Attica Locke, who is an acclaimed US writer. We have plenty of other events coming up too, which will be completely free to watch on YouTube, as well as some paid for uh, two hour bite sized creative writing workshops, which will be taking place digitally as well. So to be one of the first people to find out about the festival lineup this year, please do visit noirage.co.uk and subscribe to the newsletter. We'll be sending a big announcement out on Wednesday uh, and then you can all scramble to get your tickets. Yeah, I'm very excited it's going ahead because earlier in the year when lockdown kicked off, uh, all these all this stuff was up in the air and no one quite knew what was going to happen and you know, there's still a lot of uncertainty. But I'm, I'm pleased that Noirage is, is returning this year, even if it's in a slightly different form to usual. Absolutely. I mean, Norwich is one of those things that is so firmly ground in place in Norwich as a UNESCO city of literature. And we have these events usually spread out across different venues in the city. But actually, this is a really nice opportunity for people further afield to be able to join in with the festival. So hopefully we'll have people throughout the country and maybe even throughout the world tuning in. Absolutely. And the other thing we wanted to mention is our creative writing online courses, which are up on sale and available now, but they are selling extremely quickly, more quickly than I think we've ever seen them go. It could be that online learning is something that people are more used to now, given that we've all been forced to live this way for the last four months. Um, But yes, uh, places available on fiction courses, nonfiction, poetry, script writing, do go and check it out. If you have questions or would like to get in touch with us, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Writers Centre. You can find our Facebook page and you can sign up to our newsletter and find out about everything else we're doing at nationalcentreforwriting.org.uk. We also have a Discord community server, which you can join if you're a reader or a writer. And if you're listening to this, then I presume you're at least one of those things. Uh, Check down the show notes for the link to jump onto that. Please do subscribe to the podcast from wherever you listen to your podcasts and do drop us a a little rating and a review if you can, because it helps other people to find us. Thanks again. Keep writing and we'll catch you on the next episode. (laughs) 